Thanks, Joe. I'm Des. I'm an alcoholic. And uh, I asked Joe if um, if it was okay uh, if we if we did the preamble so we know what kind of meeting this is. And he said it was okay. And um, one of the things that we do back in uh, New York City, we have a meeting at 1 o'clock on a Friday to which you're all invited on the 10th floor of the 475 uh, Riverside Drive. And it's called the Language of the Heart Meeting. And it, we use that book, The Language of the Heart, and we do a little reading from that maybe or sharing from that. But it's kind of like a Language of the Heart workshop. But the thing we do there, I'm going to ask you to do tonight with me. And... Uh, because uh, I've been uh, sober with the grace of God uh, in this program since April 23rd, 1972. And um, I can't tell you how many times I've said the preamble in that time period. But I can tell you this, that if I tried to say it now by myself, I will screw it up. But I can also tell you that if we say it together, we'll get it done. So let's try it. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution, does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and to help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. Thank you very much. That was beautiful. It sounds beautiful, too, with everybody saying it. And um, I want to thank Pat uh, and Joe for that wonderful welcome. Um, it was great to meet Joe uh, out there in Albuquerque and then again in, in Austin. Uh, I am particularly delighted that he understood my broken Spanish, uh, which I actually read from the podium because I'm not fluent enough yet to speak it uh, with any fluency. But I do pretty well with um, some of the bilingual employees that I have at the Grapevine, and they seem to enjoy correcting my Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> and it's very helpful to be corrected by the employees because that way they get to know me better and I get to know them better. And I also learn a little bit more Spanish each day, as a matter of fact. And um, it's pretty uh, remarkable to me to think about why we're here and to think about the fact that you guys spent all this time of your lives in electing the trusted servants that you've elected today. And... Um, what an honor it is to have seen you do that and, and the patience and the, um, and, and the jockeying and the politicking and all that great stuff that goes on with drunks. I mean, it is a celebration of being alive here and that's really what we're all. We're, we're together and we're alive and we're doing it. And uh, that's what's happened to me over the past 30 years. I was dead and I was in the gutter and I was wandering and I was lying and I was doing all the things that drunks do, opening their mouths and you knew as soon as they opened their mouth they were lying. That's what I was doing. And so AA came along to me and they said, you know, Des, you're an alcoholic. And I said, I'm not an alcoholic. I, I wear a white shirt and I wear a tie. I can't be an alcoholic. I was saying that same thing 
not wearing a white shirt and a tie when I was in St. Vincent's Hospital uh, in New York City, when I was in there with a bleeding stomach. And, of course, I was in there with, with a bleeding stomach because um, I had taken too much aspirin. Well, <laughs> when you take aspirin on top of a quart of scotch for a few days in a row or for a month in a row, then it kind of gets to your stomach and makes your stomach bleed. And so as I was walking down the corridor of St. Vincent's Hospital with my green gown on and my paper slippers, trying desperately to hold the back of that green gown closed, <laughs> this doctor who I was with says to me, Desmond, you're an alcoholic. And I said to him, boy, what kind of unintelligent remark is that? I'm an alcoholic. He said, well, he said, you know, I said, you don't even know me. You've talked to me for five minutes. You're supposed to be an intelligent man. And you say to me, I'm an alcoholic? Well, this guy didn't even blink at that shot. What he comes back and he says to me, Desmond, I know thousands of people and they're just like you and you're a plain, ordinary alcoholic. <laughs> you know what I'm going to say next already, don't you? I'm not sure if I was more upset about alcoholic or plain, ordinary. So that was the beginning. The thing was, I kept denying being alcoholic because I couldn't be alcoholic. I was too smart to be an alcoholic. I said to this guy, well, I'll do anything. Uh, I'm not an alcoholic, but I, I mean, just to prove to you, I, I won't. What do you want me to do? He says, well, you're not to drink anymore. I said, consider it done. <laughs> well, P.S. <laughs> I said, I will not go. I will do anything except I will not go to AA. Because that group of people, I mean, I knew what you were. And what I knew you were was you used to go to the street corners and you would bring in these poor, unsuspecting people who were not alcoholics. But if you brought them into a meeting and you filled some more chairs in here, you got extra points. And you might get elected to be the DCM or the ABC or the CF. Because I didn't know any of those things at that time. I didn't know all the structure, but I had it figured out. So... What happened to me was that, well, I didn't want to believe I was an alcoholic, and I kept denying I was an alcoholic. And um, I would deny it every morning as I got up and I looked in the mirror and I'd salute my eyes because they were red, white, and blue. And there was nothing to get the red out at that particular point in time. What I would do is then I would get all dressed up in my white shirt and tie because I was not an alcoholic. And anybody who got dressed up in a white shirt and tie and suit and everything else and had a job, couldn't possibly be an alcoholic because I was making money and I lived in a nice part of the city and I had a family and I couldn't be an alcoholic. And so because I couldn't be an alcoholic, I would go to a different liquor store every morning as I went down to my office and I would sometimes open up that liquor store uh, with the man who owned the liquor store, knocking on the door, having him pull up the shade and I would walk in there uh, wanting him to know that I really wasn't an alcoholic. So I would say, do you have any of these tiny bottles of alcohol? Because doesn't every suave, debonair, e-cider go into a liquor store at 7.30 in the morning for tiny bottles of alcohol, knowing damn well that they were called miniatures? But see, I knew what I was doing by giving him that line was that he would think that I had this wall unit in my posh Eastside apartment filled with tiny bottles of alcohol from all over the world. And he wouldn't think that I was an alcoholic. And that's how I would start my day 
putting those in my inside coat pocket so that I could begin my social drinking at about 11.45 behind the stall in the john. And that's how the day began. Now, the reason I had to drink in the stall in the john was that I had learned that I couldn't drink safely at lunch. People were going to think I was an alcoholic, and I didn't want them to think I was an alcoholic. So, because what happened to me once, I was at lunch with my boss and some other person, and um, the, I, I drank a glass of water, just like I picked it up like this, and I put it to my lips, and I took a drink. I ordered the vodka martini, and as soon as that vodka martini arrived, my whole body tightened up. I knew what was going to happen to me was I was going to have to reach for that, and I, my hands were going to shake. I was going to spill the vodka martini on me, and I also knew that what I needed in order to stop the shakes was the vodka martini. So I looked into the front of the restaurant, and there's a bar in the front of the restaurant, but I saw that if I was at the bar getting my first vodka martini in order to drink my second vodka martini, they'd be able to see me. So I couldn't do that. I left the restaurant. I ran across the street. This is 42nd Street and Lexington Avenue in New York City to another restaurant, plowed my way through 20 deep at the bar, put the money down, got the vodka martini, all the while knowing that they're talking about me back at the restaurant where I just left. This is all taking place in about 90 seconds, you know, back and forth across the street. My mind going a thousand miles an hour. I grabbed the second vodka martini and like that, whip it down, dash back across the street. And in the 30 seconds that that took, and I sit down and I grab the second drink. No shakes. I picked it up. Now, wouldn't you buy tiny bottles of alcohol to drink in the john before you went out to lunch if that's how you solved the problem? And that's, of course, what I did. And so this went on and on and on, not being an alcoholic, until one day, uh, not being an alcoholic, took me to, and then, and then I would start home. A after I got through my lunchtime drinking, what I would do is, I just want to give you a kind of a feel for the days, you know, the, these really brilliant, sunshiny days that I was living when I was coming to the end of my drinking. I didn't know, of course, it was the end of my drinking, but I was rapidly winding it up. I would come home from, I would come back to my office at about 2.30, and then between 2.30 and 3.30, I would shuffle some papers and write some notes and do whatever I thought I needed to do to keep this job, which was the source of my income for drinking. And then about 3.30, I would go down the elevator in my building, up the escalator in another building where there's this great restaurant called Charlie Brown's. And Charlie Brown's would have two quick shooters to tide me over to cocktail time. And then at cocktail time, I would go to the bar in the building, have one drink, because I didn't want anybody to think I was an alcoholic. And then I would go home. I mean, I might leave office at 5.30, 6 o'clock. I might get home by 8. I might stop in five or six bars on the way home. I would only have one drink in each bar, because I didn't want the bartender to think I was an alcoholic. <laughs> and then I'd go home and I'd say to my wife, hey, let's have a drink. And so I'd make her a drink and make me a drink, and then we'd have supper, and we'd have some beer or some wine or something with supper, and then I'd proceed to uh, watch the television with another beer or wine or something until uh, I would wind up at 2 or 3 in the morning with the, there were patterns on the TV. 
uh, there was not TV all night long at that time. There were like X's and Y's and numbers and things like that. And I'd wake up in front of the TV and uh, having passed out, and then I would go to bed, sleep for a few hours, get up, loop my eyes, and begin the whole thing again. Now, what God was doing for me that I couldn't do for myself was he got me really plastered one morning in my office. And so what happened was my boss came in and uh, the higher powers in the, in the company came in and they said, uh, um, there's something wrong with this man as he is lying supine on the floor <laughs> when everybody else is out having lunch or when they just come back from lunch. And uh, they didn't know. They honestly didn't know that I was drunk. But I said to my boss, you know, I have an alcohol problem. And he said, you're telling me you got an alcohol problem. <laughs> you can never drink in this company again. So I saved my job. And my cards were on the table. And so I came into AA because the best way to save my job was to go to AA. But the fact was I couldn't get sober because, like I said, I really wasn't an alcoholic. I had this little time. I used to go to meetings, you know, and I'd say to the people at the meetings, you know, I'm really not an alcoholic. I just have this little problem that I get drunk sometimes when I drink. And they'd, you know, sort of put up with me and they'd smile a little bit and they'd say, well, that's nice, Des. Why don't you just keep coming back? You know, hang around with us a little while, see how you feel, you know, a few months from now. And um, I just really couldn't get it. You know, I was trying uh, to get it. I was trying, because uh, see what happened. Th this was what happened to me. It's what happens to me every single time I go to a meeting, is that I fall in love with the people. The first time I walked into my first meeting, now I didn't know this at the time, but I know it today in hindsight. I fell in love with the people. They just got me. I was listening to Pam tonight. I fell in love with Pam as she was talking. I mean, there were tears coming down my eyes as I'm listening to her, her talking about her mom and everything else. And you know, when I came into that first meeting, I mean, I was really a hardened non-alcoholic as I've described myself. But I went to that meeting because I was going to be fired from my job. But when I walked in that room, here's what I thought. I thought that everybody in AA wore khaki. Now, why I thought that, I don't know, but that's just what I thought. So I walk in the room, and you know, everybody's wearing different colored clothes. And I said, wow, geez, they're just, they're kind of like ordinary people. And I met a guy there, Skip. They told me to me, I called up into group, you know, and they told me, well, you go to the meeting and you go ask for Skip. Well, Skip was crazy, was absolutely crazy. You know, and I've met Skip since. He's sober now 20, 25 years. And he says, you know, when I met you, Jess, in that meeting, I was totally crazy because he's talking about, I, I don't even, he's talking about his mother and his father and something else. And, um, you know, thank God I was well fortified for that meeting because I had stopped into Clancy's and a few Boilermakers before I walked in so I could handle Skip for that first meeting. <laughs> and um, then I saw the people there and they're dressed in this. In fact, one guy had one of these Madras jackets on, you know, multicolor, technicolor, dreamcoat kind of jacket. And this guy... He, he took my, he took this book, one of the one of the books of the meetings, and he began writing in it and and marking meetings. And I said, gee, that was kind of nice of me. But see, I was I was still like um, behind so many walls 
so many walls of denial. Uh, and I didn't know this at the time. You understand I'm looking at this with the benefit of 30 years of hindsight. And so I was, I was behind these walls, but you guys had me from the first minute. I, there was no question in my mind. I was finished. I mean, I still had to drink some more, but I was done. And the reason I was done was alcoholics are so real. I mean, that meeting, I, have, I, I don't remember a single thing that was said at that meeting. But what I do remember was the people were real. I mean, they were smiling, they were laughing, they were serious, they were concerned, they were open, they were willing to talk to me. They could smell the alcohol on my breath, I'm sure, but it didn't stop them. And they marked the book and they told me to come back again. And so that began my first year in AA. And my first year in AA is not a story of a lot of successes um, because I was kept denying I was an alcoholic. And I've come to look at that phase of my life as the inability to turn it over, the inability to be powerless. And I'll talk about this in, in, in a little while more, about this idea of powerless, how that first step is, is so powerful in terms of everything in AA. Um, I was a great analyzer, you know, and I used to try to figure out um, how the steps fit together. You know, I'd be listening to the shades on the wall and I'm analyzing, I'm memorizing the steps, I'm doing all this stuff just to keep my brain occupied, which was going in five different directions. And I'm figuring to myself, this word powerless, boy, this permeates every single one of those steps, is what I'm saying to myself. And, I mean, I didn't know how smart I was when I was doing it. I mean, don't misunderstand me. I was arrogant enough to think I was really smart, but I didn't really know just how smart this program is and what it does to you. So anyway, what happened to me was that I didn't want to stay sober. I didn't want to be a drunk. I, I, I didn't want anybody to think I was a drunk. And so, you know, if you're not a drunk, well, then you can't get the program because the program is for people who are drunk and were powerless over alcohol. And I wasn't. And so the great thing about it was that I kept going to meetings. And the people liked me. And, I, and as I said, you had me from the first minute I walked in that room, so I liked them. I mean, they were really smart. But you know what I was doing? I was writing a term paper on alcoholics, and I was going to publish it in the New York Times. Or I was going to... Oh, I was going to rewrite the, 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 the big book. I was going to rewrite that and put it into real good English, like it wasn't in good English because obviously it wasn't well written. And so all those kind of things I was going to do, but I'd sit there and I'd be amazed at these people who would come in. I used to go to this meeting called the Mustard Seed in New York City at 12.30. And I mean, there people from all over, different businesses, and man, they were so smart. I mean, they'd quote this book and they'd quote Bill Wilson and they'd quote the philosophers and they'd quote, I said, Boy, oh boy, these guys, I got I can do that. So anyway, I start quoting stuff, right? And people are writing down all the brilliant things that I'm quoting and saying. They're staying sober on them. I'm getting drunk on them because I couldn't admit it. But here's what happened. They said I kept coming back, and 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 here's how they here's how they handled me. They, the first time I came back, they were very sympathetic, and they said, "Welcome back." And I, of course, said, well, of course, they wanted me back. I'm adding a little bit of life to this meeting. They want me here. And so I figured, oh, of course, they're going to say welcome. Well, then I'm out again. You know, I'd be, I'd be sober a week and drunk the next, and I'd be, I'd be sober a month, and then I might be drunk for two weeks, that kind of thing. And so I come back the second time, and they say, welcome back. How, how was it? 
I said, what do you mean, how was it? You think I'd be back here if it was any good? You know, what kind of, what kind of stupid question is that? So then, 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 the, and then, then we, this, this would go on, you know, but they still welcomed me back. They said, well, look, it just keep coming, just keep coming. It's gonna, it's gonna work out okay. And then, and then, they, and then they say, um, oh, next time they said, well, well, tell me what happened. So I, I go through the whole thing, you know, like I lost the car. I fell through the coffee table, and um, and the cops came, and I and I drove the car into a snowbank, uh, or I had a taxi cab, had to drive me around the neighborhood to find my car, uh, and uh, I was very embarrassed by the whole thing, and the taxi cab driver didn't seem to mind. I mean, apparently he had done this with a few other people in Manhattan before. <laughs> and the cops almost put me in jail, but they didn't put me in jail because I knew some people in the neighborhood, and blah 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 blah, and they said, uh, "Oh, thanks a lot. You did it for me." Now, that really pissed me off, i got to tell you. I didn't like that idea of doing it for somebody else. I thought that was a little bit too tacky. So, anyhow, next time I come back, um, we went through this whole thing and the same, the same drill. You know, welcome, uh, goes, what was it like, you know, and then and, uh, tell us, you know, what it was like. And, you know, you did it for me, the whole thing. And, um, and, then, and then the coup de grace that they came upon me and they said, uh, uh, you know, we knew you were coming back. Well, I really didn't like that because I hated being predictable. And they really had my number down cold. And so this went on and on until there were various milestones that began to break down that wall of denial, that began to break down that wall of being powerful over alcohol. And one of the things that I remember so vividly and I still recall it many times, uh, even today. I was sitting in this meeting in the mustard seat, and it was a, it was a, it was a dimly lit, you know, downstairs cellar in a brownstone on 37th Street in Lexington Avenue, New in New York City. And um, it was a rainy Friday afternoon, and I had been in my office that morning trying to write a marketing plan for a company uh, that I had written the same marketing plan for the year before. And I was in such great mental condition that I could not remember the words that were in front of me on this page long enough to change the date on this page when I tried to rewrite them and update the marketing plan for the ensuing year. And it was baffling me and it was frustrating me and I was absolutely going insane. And I knew, and this is what I told the group, just what I just told you. And I told the group, you know, I know how to solve this problem. All I need is one drink. I wouldn't have five. I would have one. And then I'd be able to write that marketing plan. And the whole meeting turned around to me. Everybody in that meeting. I mean, the next person shared about how their nerves were jangled. Somebody else said, shared a similar experience to mine. And somebody talked about, you know, getting medical attention and, you know, what you have to do and how you have to take care of yourself and you know, drink warm soups or whatever. I don't know what they said even. It was, the, it was the whole feeling of people just taking me in their arms and loving me right there. And again, I fell more deeply in love with the people. And then, and then the next thing that happened was that the meeting is over and I'm standing at the bulletin board reading the notices on the, on the bulletin board. And, uh, and I'm just really preoccupied in that. And I kind of noticed there's a guy... He was a New York City fireman. He's about six four. He's standing on this side of me, and then and then I noticed there's another guy, and he's about six three. 
And he might have been a New York City cop. I don't know, but he looked like a New York City cop. And he's standing on that side of me. And they just started talking to me, Des, you know, how's it going and what's going on? Because I had said, you know, I know how to solve this. There's ten bars between here and my office. And all I knew was one drink. And I noticed as I'm leaving the, uh, leaving the room, these two guys are kind of like one on each side as we're walking down Lexington Avenue. <laughs> and I'm talking to them, you know, and just very casually. And, but what it's dawning on me is that we're passing the first bar and the second bar and the third bar and the fourth bar. And I wind up standing in the vestibule of my office building and they said, uh, we noticed you didn't drink, did you? You didn't drink uh, getting back to your office today. I said, no, I didn't drink. Thank you. And so that began another phase of that love affair with, with AA, with the people in AA, because I knew they really cared. And they'd come to my home, and, and uh, when I was out on a, on a slip, they would come to my home and, and try to talk to me. They would do it, you know, five of them would come up with a 12-step call. They'd come for, to my apartment. So that I knew they really loved me and they really cared about, and they were getting nothing in return from this in any type of monetary way, uh, any praise. There was nothing. They were just there because they believed that sharing the gift they had been given was the way to live life. And so that's what they did to me. And so gradually what happened to me is that uh, wall that I had place between myself and people in Alcoholics Anonymous began to crumble, you know, because they punched it out with those gifts of love that they threw in there, and slowly it came down. But then what was still there was this cellophane wrapper. Do you know, like, I could see you, and I could talk to you at meetings, and I knew you were there, I knew you were listening, and I knew you, I was affecting you, and you were affecting me. But there was some way I couldn't touch you. And I didn't know what that was all about. But it was true. It was like I was behind the filter or something. And so somebody said to me, you know, Des, um, there's these things called the promises in the book. And um, one of the promises is um, if that you'll be able to handle situations that used to baffle you you'll be able to handle those situations intuitively. And I said, oh man, I want that. I just want that thing. Because I'm, I mean, my, you know, the signs of, you know, you're, the sun signs, you know, well, I'm a Libra. There's the scales, right? So the scales, I mean, it's like on the one hand, you know, the Tevye thing, on the one hand, we should do this. Well, I don't know. Let's try this over here. And, you know, by the time I got finished figuring out the two scales, well, the whole day had gone and I hadn't done anything yet. And I used to drive me absolutely bonkers because of living in my head, getting ready to live, all that kind of stuff, I wanted to just do something. So I said, In intuition's got to be the key. And um, I figured out, uh, and I know today that I figured it out because I had read it in the books. It's just so all over the place. I thought that I had brilliantly deduced this from something else, but it's right in the big book. And the big book uh, lets you know that if you want to be intuitive, what you need to do is meditate. You need to do our 11th step. So I said, okay. So I started to do the 11th step, and um, a number of things, and I, I know, it, and, and believe me, it wasn't a, a, a big time thing. It may be 60 second 11th step, you know. I can, I can handle 60 seconds because I've got the tailors to go to, and I've got to go to the bank, plus I've got to get some things from the, from, the, from, the, uh, from the laundry or bring my laundry in. 
there were a lot of important things I had to do in the course of a day, and I could just about, you know, dole out 60 seconds for this 11th step, but I did it every single day. And so, gradually, I began to be able not to have to do this total analysis, paralysis, evaluation kind of thing, and I began to act. And gradually, what I noticed was that I'd be in places and I'd be totally by myself. You know, I remember waking up one morning, I was in um, California on a business. I used to have, I hate to go off on business trips by myself because it was just a lonely type of thing. And I do the business part of it, but I was always feeling lonely. And so I woke up one morning and there was nobody, no other human being in the room except me. And uh, I woke up this morning and I knew positively that I was not alone. I knew there was another presence that was with me in that, in that room that day. And that was a, that, that's a milestone in the change, in my change of attitude and my way of seeing things and my way of feeling about things. I thought that was the end of it. You know, I figured, well, I've arrived here at the mountain here. But, you know, it keeps going on, on and on and on. So there were other milestones. Um, another milestone, I was, I was in, um, uh, and this is, it pertains to getting the cellophane wrapper, just because what happened to that cellophane wrapper, I got to tell you, is that, you know, when you take a cellophane wrapper and you put a cigarette in it, what happens? It just goes, shh. Well, that's what happened. It just disappears. I mean, I don't feel that tonight. I don't think there's anything between us at all. You can touch me and I can touch you. I know that. But the net, one of the other, other milestones in, in, in this process was that, um, I was up in Canada, in Canada at a meeting. And, um, here's what I was doing. I'm sitting at this meeting and the people, there were about seven or eight business people at the meeting. It's a lovely venue looking over one of the Great Lakes. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying, what a stupid remark that guy just made. I mean, he's the president, this guy's the president of a multi-billion dollar company, right? I'm saying he's really stupid. This other guy over here, look at that tie. I mean, you must have got that tie from some Bowery bum because it doesn't match anything else. The plaids don't go together. The lines are the wrong direction. This other guy over here, I mean, he thinks he's smart. He's just a jerk. And he hasn't said it. And, and so I'm going on like this with everybody, every single person. Character assassination, one by one by one by one by one. And I'm saying, this is the most stupid, boring meet. This is like, I've been at the meeting for four hours. And so a little voice in the back of my head says, Des, um, why don't you uh, put yourself in the presence of your higher power? Now, I, I, I didn't want to do that because I was convinced that if I put myself in the presence of my higher power, it would stop me from being present to those people that I was assassinating, you see. And because it was going to interfere with my being really there in the here and now and all this kind of stuff, right? So, but I suspended belief for a minute and I, I could, wow, I go, okay, to myself, and this is a conversation going on inside of my brain. Okay, so I put myself in the presence of my higher power, and it's like. Because I saw what I was doing. I saw that I was playing voyeur. I saw that I was being ungrateful to those people who had asked me to come up and spend some time with them, and who were actually paying me to come up there to spend some time with them. And what was I doing? I was sitting there being a critique of the whole thing. 
and not participating. So the voice said, well, look, it says, if you're going to be in the ring, keep the gloves on. So I started participating in the meeting. It turned out to be a fabulous meeting for me. I don't know how they reacted to it, but I was making remarks. I was having fun. I was cracking jokes. I was having a good time. I was making some intelligent comments about their business. It changed everything for me because I experienced for myself that being in the presence of my higher power, like it says in that 11th step, improve your conscious contact with God as you understand God. Now, I could do that and not be separated from you and not be less available to you, which was my fear. I figured if I do that, I'm going to be in some mental stratosphere which is going to prevent me from being available. Not true. It makes me totally available to you and to anybody else I'm with in the course of a day. And so this process of being more and more powerless, of turning it over more and more and more, which is the, which is the, the, the tremendously um, therapeutic and healing, healing principle, I believe, in our steps. This particular, and the simple principle. I mean, it's as simple as if you don't drink, you don't get drunk. If you don't pick up a drink, you can't get drunk. I mean, rocket science for an alcoholic. And so the same thing is true. That if I spend more time meditating, if I spend more time in that 11th step, then I'm going to be more available to my fellow alcoholics and to everybody. Because our responsibility statement doesn't limit us to alcoholics. It says whenever anywhere, anyone anywhere reaches out for help, we want the hand of AA to be available to them. So it, it applies to anybody. And I'm not afraid for it to apply to anybody. I don't care if they know I'm an alcoholic. Not that I go around willy-nilly breaking my anonymity. Don't misunderstand me. But the fact is, if somebody calls me, I'll say, yeah. Yes, I am. I'm, 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 I'm recovering in this fabulous program of Alcoholics Anonymous. So, what then happens to me is that AA, again, comes to the rescue with this trunk. Now, this is about 12 years. Maybe I'm about 12 years sober or so. And then they come up and they say, hey, would you, would you uh, be on one of our committees? You're involved in the public relations business. How about being on our public information committee? So my sponsor had said to me, um, well, if AA asks you to do something, you just say yes. Don't even think about it. You just say yes. So I say yes. So they say, I'll take about an hour a month. I said, that's fine. I can do it. An hour a quarter. I can do that. So then they come up a little while longer, a little while later, a number of years later, and they say, uh, well, you know, would you let us put your name in to be a uh, uh, director of, the, of uh, AAWS? And I said, well, what's AAWS? And they explained to me what AAWS is, and they tell me what they do and so on. And I just, I said, well, like, yeah, fine. I don't understand what this is all about, but yes, do it, do it. So uh, they go through the vote, and then they chose somebody else. So I said, terrific. Damn it. Terrific. You know, damn it, terrific. <laughs> Both things. I mean, I thought, sure, it's honest. That's the way it was. I felt good and I felt lousy. But then they came back the next week and they said, well, we got this opening on the, on the grapevine board. Can we put your name in to nominate for the grapevine board? And I said, sure, you can do that. Because I, I used to read the grapevine. Not a, the grapevine I knew something about. So I said, yeah. And, um, and so, you know, typical AA fish. And I'll tell you how I got, I got, I got put on the grapevine board. 
I walked into the, to the meeting uh, of, with all the directors of the grapevine, and um, this guy by the name of uh, Stanley, Stanley Silverman, was there. Now, Stanley, as you can tell by his name, is a Jewish guy, and I'm a Catholic guy. So Stanley looks at me, and he says, Oh, it's Jesus Christ. I said, Excuse me, Stanley? He says, Yeah, well, Des, you know, I used to think you were Jesus Christ. Every time I heard you talk, you were so, you know, you, you had, I didn't know what you were talking about, but, you know, you just had this way about you that, you know, I said, This guy is Jesus Christ. So I said, I got to tell you this story. So I told him this story, and you may have heard this, but it's about, it's, you know, it's about Moses and Jesus at Pine Gulf. And there's a water hole. So Jesus gets up to the water hole and he says, you know, to Moses, he says, Moses, it's a, it, it's a, uh, um, a seven iron shot, just like Jack Nicklaus. Moses says, Jesus, it's 180 yards. It's a five iron shot. Moses, Jesus says, no, it's a, it's a, it's a seven. So, of course, Jesus hits the shot, plunk right in the water. Moses, you know, parts the water, gets the ball back, gives it to Jesus. And Jesus gets up again. He says, it's a seven iron shot, just like Jack Nicklaus. And Moses says, Jesus, it's a five. Same result. Except this time it hits the bank and bounces in. And Moses says, look it, I'm tired of this. He parts the water, gets the ball back. This is the last time, Jesus, I'm giving you the ball. He says, so. So anyway, Jesus gets up. He says, you know, it's a seven iron shot, just like Jack Nicklaus. And of course, right, he just dribbles it off the tee. It's right, in, right into the, to the water. So Moses says, tough luck, Jesus. Jesus, doesn't matter. He walks across the water. He gets the ball. He's walking back over the water. With that, there's a foursome coming up on the next tee. And they see Moses, and they see this guy on the water, and they yell over to Moses. They say, hey, hey, buddy, who's that guy think he is? Jesus Christ? Moses says, no, he thinks he's Jack Nicklaus. So they asked me to serve on the board. I guess they thought I, I could improve the caliber of the, the humor in the grapevine. I don't know. So, um, but that began, that began a whole series of things. And then, and then they asked me to be a trustee, to serve as a trustee. And by that time, I knew what a trustee was. I mean, after all, I'd been serving for four years as a director. You think I might have picked up a few things? And I did. I said, yeah, I'd like to do that. And so I had a wonderful time serving as a, as a, as a, as a trustee uh, on the Grapevine Board. And, um, and then I rotated off that, and I said, oh, God, thank God, I'm out of here. I'm out of this thing. I, I don't have to do this anymore, because after the first year after I was, I'd been a trustee, I could never figure out how I, how I did it. I, I couldn't understand how I put that much time in. I was running a company. And, um, and I said, I don't know how this... But, you know, God provides us and lets us do that because it's important to do. The whole service thing is so important in my life as part of my recovery story. I really, I really do see the, 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 uh, the legacies of recovery, uh, unity, and service coming together in, in my particular path. And it's so appropriate right now tonight to be talking about that since so many of you have spent so much time in, in electing trusted servants here for all of us. And, um, and so... And I was telling Pat here uh, before, you know, I run the grapevine now, as I think uh, Joe maybe mentioned. And um, uh, I used to sit at the grapevine boards. Now, don't misunderstand me. I was a very dedicated director and, and, and trustee and everything else, and I did the best I could do with the job. But I'd be sitting at the grapevine meetings, and I'd say, I don't know how anybody could 
possibly work for this company. I mean, it is absolute dog. I mean, and I would try, I would, I would talk, I and mean, this is just me talking. Now, I'm not saying it really was, don't misunderstand me, but this is my perception. And so I'm saying I could, I could never, I couldn't, couldn't possibly work for this company. Well, here's what happens. <laughs> Typical AA irony is that um, 10 years later, I mean, I, I hadn't, been involved with the service structure except to go to, uh, uh, you know, go to meetings. Uh, I, I, I was friendly with some of the trustees and I'd go to the dinners, you know, before the conference and things like that because I was always, in, we were invited to that, which is a lovely thing and I'd, and, I'd, and I'd know, I'd read the 459 and know who was serving and everything. But I was not really involved in the service structure at all. And uh, so some people asked me to put my name in the hat and for the first time in my AA life, I said, no. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I just retired. I just re I bought this home up in Nova Scotia, and I, we just spent all this money fixing it up, and it's on the ocean, and I've already gotten an agreement with one of the universities to teach a course up there. I don't want to do that. And the guy looked at me. I mean, you know, he just stared me down. He says, well, you have to. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't even talking about doing the job. He was just saying, you've got to put your resume in. And I'm saying, no, I'm not going to do that. He says, you don't have any choice. Well, he was right. You know, he was right. I had no choice. I mean, how could I say, could I live with myself, you know, five years from now if I didn't at least put my, they might choose somebody else, I'm saying to myself. They may choose somebody else to do this job, so I'm off the hook. But if I don't put the resume in, I'll never live with myself. Well, the rest is history. But here's the important part about that, is that I did say no, but then I, I changed, I, I did change. So it's possible to change in AA, as all of you know. And I did it pretty fast. And that was positive too. It didn't take me six months to do that. But the point is that what happened as a result of that is that I was talking about the 11th step. And what I've had to do is that I've had to totally change my priorities in terms of the 11th step. No more 60 second numbers. Because I was really clear about the importance of this message that we share with each other. Because that's all the grapevine is. It's a medium, as you know, for people to share their stories and their recovery and their transformation. Now, what a sacred trust that is to be able to be in a position to help that, to make it work better. And so I'm saying to myself, if I'm going to do that, boy, i got to get down into the silence. Because someone said to me, God is the silence from which the word is spoken. And I went, Whew, that's pretty powerful. That means I've got to spend time in the silence if I'm going to be able to speak, if I'm going to be able to share, if I'm going to be able to evaluate, if I'm going to be able to be an instrument for this fellowship to grow and for those spires of service to still be around. Somebody said, you know, it was William James, by the way. You know, William James, Bill says, William James gave us the, uh, the 11, the 12, the, the 12 step about having had a spiritual, the spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. We try to carry this message to others. He says, I got that from William James because when I had my spiritual experience, I didn't know what that was. And so he read the varieties of religious experience and William James describes exactly what happened to Bill. So he credits William James for that. Well, the other thing William James says, one of the great uses of life is to spend it on something that 
lives beyond your life. And so the privilege that I've been given is to spend my life, the time of my life, on something that's going to live beyond me. Hopefully. And so the grapevine's going to go on and on and on and on. But in order to do that, this is what I do, you know, and it's so simple. I'm just going to share it with you because it's like, it's, it's like if you don't pick up the first drink, you can't get drunk. And it's just as simple as God can do for us what we can't do for ourselves. So somebody, you know, I had spent all this time in AA, that's 29 years. I, I, I took the grapevine job on when I was 29 years sober. And I had tried to find out different methods of meditation and I'd read all the books, not all the books, but I read a lot of books about it. I had, I had, I used to meditate like 20 minutes a day in the morning and 20 minutes at night because that's what I heard the gurus tell you to do, so I did that. And I'm using all sorts of methods and all sorts of acts and I'm humming and I'm doing this and I'm going oming and I'm, and I'm sitting cross-legged on the floor and all this kind of stuff. And I'm doing it. And life is getting really good. It's really, really better as I would do that. But then, you know, when life gets really good, what do you need that stuff for? So you drop that off for a while and you go do something else. But now, I still know it's the 20 minutes. But you know what? God can do for me what I can't do for myself. So all I got to do is show up. I don't have to have any method. I mean, if I get distracted, the only thing I do is that somebody said, choose some kind of word. You know, choose a word. I use the word veni, which means come in Latin. And please come. And, uh, but it doesn't matter what, you could use love, you could use welcome, you could use shalom, whatever you want to use. Just pick up a word, say hello. And use a word, and that becomes like the, you know, you, did you ever see that movie, The uh, Conspiracy Theory, where this guy, a guy says a word and also something automatic happens? Well, all that word does is signify my intention to be available to my higher power, to be present to my higher power. Now, I did that twice today for 20 minutes each day. You know how available I was to my higher power? Like about three seconds in the first 20 minutes and maybe five seconds in the, in the, in the second 20 minutes. But it, it doesn't matter. Because God's going to do for me what I can't do for myself. All the methods in the world don't matter. The only thing is my intention to be available to that higher power. And I can understand that. Because my intention in coming to these meetings, whether I knew it or not, from the very first day, was not to drink. And a lot of times I didn't know that. So the people caught me, or something funny they said, or their brilliance caught me, or their, their clarity, or their insights, and then the readings, something caught me, and so I gradually came to love it in a different way. But the fact is that God was doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. And so the program has forced me, and I really mean that, just like the program and the people forced me not to drink. They didn't twist my arm but they showed me another way. And so the program and service and all the things that the gifts that the program has given to me, the gift of you here tonight, the gift of having traveled the road that I've traveled with so many other drunks for so many years, all those gifts are doing for me what I could not do for myself. And so now all I need to do is signify my intention to that higher power to allow that higher power to do for me what I can't do for myself 
in this time of meditation. And so that when my words are spoken, they come from a better place. They come from a place that's not filled with ego, not filled with self-aggrandizement or any of that stuff. Maybe it's filled with more honesty than I even know about because I don't know how honest I am. It seems to grow and grow and grow and grow. I got to tell you, I thought I was really honest 15 years ago. But I know today that 15 years ago when I heard that statement, which was praying only for the knowledge of his will and the power to carry that out, I didn't want that. I didn't want to hear that. What I wanted to hear was, I didn't mind the idea of conscious connection with my heart power, but this stuff about his will, I didn't want that. I, I knew what I, I wanted in intuition, or I wanted to be sharp, or I wanted to be clear, or I wanted to be this, or I wanted to be that. I wanted some stuff for me. That's what I wanted. Well, today, I probably want all those same things, as a matter of fact. But I'm willing to have my only intention be his will, her will, its will, whatever you want to call it, and the power to carry out that will. So the transformation that's taken place in this drunk over the 30 years as a result of the gifts of being open is that I've fallen deeper and deeper in love with you every time I meet you. And you touch me in the most unexpected ways. I can feel somebody going to cry on the podium or something sad in, in their being before they even say it. My eyes start to burn and then they say it, then my eyes begin to cry. So the, 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 um, the, the symphony of emotions that I had, I had suppressed for so long are finally getting a chance to be orchestrated in life a day at a time. And for that, I am grateful to you.